This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and this is the New Books Network, and we are joined today by Catherine M. Young. She is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and an Access to Justice faculty fellow at the American Bar Foundation. The reason she joins us today is to discuss her book, How to Be Sort of Happy in Law School, and it's important to know her background. She's a Stanford Law School graduate. And she's also, of course, received her PhD from Stanford University. Professor Young, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. So this is a, in some ways, it's a self-help book, I guess you could say, uh, for law students, people who supposedly don't need any self-help. Why why did you write this? (laughs) Well, um, you know, I went to law school myself, as you mentioned, um, and actually, I did my sociology PhD concurrently, uh, meaning that I hung around the law school for eight or nine years while I was tr- training as a sociologist. And I originally had no, no kind of academic research interest in legal education. Um, but, you know, over time, seeing different law school classes enter and leave, uh, seeing social patterns that seemed like they were repeating in class after class, law school just really started to intrigue me as a social institution. Um, so like many things we do as academics, it started as a side project, um, but it was so interesting to me uh, that it kept kind of growing. Um, and, you know, it's funny you, you mention it uh, as a self-help book, which I guess it is in part. Uh, in deciding how to write the book, I was actually a little bit torn um, because, you know, I'm a sociologist and a legal academic, and I wanted to write a book that would be useful to teachers and scholars. But I also wanted to write a book that was accessible to law students. Um, you know, the book I wish I myself could have read in law school. Um, so, you know, uh, I wanted, there are already books that talk about, you know, how to make law review, how to get a firm job, uh, but really not how to figure out whether that's really what you want or help you think about how your race or class might affect you in law school, and not that are empirically grounded. And the empirical grounding was, you know, very, very important to me as a sociologist. So how to be be sort of happy in law school ended up being kind of this weird academic uh, popular hybrid. It's based in empirical research. Um, I try not to use a lot of jargon, and I try to frame the findings in a way that I hope students can take something useful from them. 
And that's true. You've done some empirical research specifically for this book. Uh, you you uh, sent out surveys in particular of law students. And so if you can explain that background that helps inform the work. Sure, sure. Um, well, so I designed a study um, to help me learn more about law students nationally. I mean, like I said, I was at Stanford Law School for a long time, but, you know, like any law school, it's idiosyncratic. It's also, you know, a place where a lot of people who grew up very privileged go. So, you know, it's an outlier in a number of ways. Um, so I, I wanted to study law, law students in a, in a very serious way. So I ended up serving over a thousand law students um, from over a hundred different law schools about things like their biggest sources of stress and happiness, their goals, their experiences. Um, I also surveyed law school alums from about 50 schools. Um, I supplemented these findings with in-depth interviews uh, of law students, as well as in-person visits to a bunch of different law schools where I interviewed everyone from uh, actually law professors all the way to librarians, to custodial staff, um, to really everyone there. I wanted to know about all of law school as an institution and how it functioned. Um, oh, and I also interviewed several people who dropped out of law school. And so this is, in many ways, this is a sociological study of what it is to be a law student. But at the same time, as you mentioned, it, there's a self-help aspect, kind of tongue-in-cheek the way I introduced it. But really, uh, there's advice for um, current students and I suppose people who would become uh, law students as well. I hope so. I mean, and I and I also hope for you know scholars of the of, of legal education and the legal profession, and I hope that it's a book that um, law professors and law school administrators will read and think about how to make law school a better place for lawyers to be. And I want to get to your recommendations for how law school could be improved in a little while, but you are not absent from this book. In other words, your own personal biography plays a role in this as well. And you start out with acknowledging that you weren't always entirely enthusiastic as a law student yourself, right? <laughs> That's right. I mean, I, you know, I, I had a love-hate relationship with, with law school, as probably many of us do. Um, you know, I was one of those people who knew exactly what they wanted to do since high school and made it happen, um, except, of course, it didn't turn out that way at all. Um, I knew I wanted to become a public defender. I had no doubt at any point until I got to law school. And realized that actually the ways that I had changed and the ways that my brain worked and the things that I was interested in weren't really feeling like they fit with law school. And law school was frustrating in a number of ways. I was running up against um, you know, a lack of class privilege um, that affected me personally and I was trying to make sense of. Uh, I was very interested in distributive inequality and didn't feel like I you know, was welcome to ask those kinds of questions in a lot of my classes. I mean, I had sort of, I was very naive. I went into law school really thinking that it was going to be like grad school for people committed to social justice. And it's unclear where that idea came from, but it's one that I did go to law school with. And, you know, finally, my, um, my uh, criminal procedure professor pulled me aside and said, look, you're asking great, great questions, um, but they're very much sociological questions. I really think you should consider doing a PhD along with this. Um, and I said, oh, come on, like, I've never... Like, I've never even taken a sociology class. That seems ridiculous. And he said, oh, let's talk. Let's talk. This might be right for you. Um, and, and he was absolutely right. And so my own kind of path through law school um, does, it, it very much informs the book. And my experience as a law student was, you know, really the, the impetus for me writing the book. I wish that I had known certain things going into law school um, 
that I didn't. And I wanted um, students like me to be in a better place starting out. Well, let's explore this further because I'm, I'm glad you, in the context of mentioning your own personal involvement in the book, you explain how you start law school and then you find that it's a different kind of intellectual endeavor than, say, grad school or undergraduate work. I, too, have been both a student in law school, but also uh, earning a, a PhD, and they are very different experiences. Um, and I remember before uh, going into uh, law school, one of uh, a friend of mine who was already in school, he said, um, law school is not going to be what you think it is. It's not going to be uh, some exploration of ideas. He said, it's professional school. You're learning rules. And it's very different from undergrad. And, uh, and I didn't really understand fully what he meant until I'm in the middle of law school. And so can you explain a little uh, in greater detail about what is the difference between the law school intellectual endeavor versus other types of education? Sure, sure. Well, I had a I had a similar experience, and I I think it's funny that you and I both went to law school and in PhD pro and PhD programs, and ended up in disciplinary departments as opposed to law schools. Um, you know, I I think that uh, so for me there were there were a couple moments, but but there's one moment that really crystallized um, for me that being a practicing lawyer probably wasn't going to be it, um, which was I was working at the Federal Public Defender's Office doing a really fantastic uh, uh, clerkship that was just everything I wanted, everything I thought I wanted. I was working on cool appellate cases. I was directly representing uh, folks charged with infractions. And at one point, the uh, prosecutors, the AUSAs who were working uh, against us in in a number of cases who are our opponents, decided to start putting this uh, language into plea agreements um, that would basically force our clients to surrender certain rights. And they were, as they saw it, they were forcing our hand. Um, and I said um, to my boss, my boss was, you know, sort of lamenting this. And I said to my boss, you know, uh, we, we don't have to sign these. Are you kidding? Like, we can just jam up the system, like, and change it by not, by not signing any of these agreements, and they'll have to take it out. And you know, that was so naive, of course, but, you know, he just sort of laughed and he was like, you know, you, your job as a lawyer is to represent the client in front of you. It's not to think about the system. And I just had this moment where I thought, it's not? And, and you know, for me, I mean, of course he was right. Of course a good, a good PD is thinking about, about his or her client first. Um, but it also, I also realized that the way I wanted to think in my day-to-day life uh, was going to need to be more driven by thinking about systems and how social systems worked. I mean, in the book, I use this analogy where, you know, I say um, you're being you know, trained to be a, a mechanic, uh, not an inventor in law school. You are learning, you know, yes, you learn how the engine works, but basically you're going to have people who come bring their cars to you and you fix them as best you can. You are not going to be building cars. You are not going to be figuring out what makes cars safer. You're not going to be inventing new cars. That is not what law school is for. Um, so for me, that's that's kind of basic, uh, the basic difference, um, or a basic difference, I guess, between how you learn how to think in law school uh, and how you learn how to think in a PhD program. So I, I had uh, an experience that's uh, somewhat similar. I remember thinking, boy, it would just be so much fun. I was an insurance, what they call an insurance defense litigator, which basically means you 
represent insurance companies and their insureds. And I remember thinking, boy, it'd be so much fun to be a First Amendment litigator um, and doing the kinds of appellate cases that you read about in law school, in uh, constitutional law courses. And I asked this attorney who was actually well-known in the state for doing First Amendment law, and I said, is there any way to break into this? And he said, well, go represent newspapers for free because they get sued a lot for libel. And I thought, oh, that sounds like a kind of a tough road to hoe to become a <laughs> first amendment litigator. It's kind of by accident wow. that you might actually do it. And, yeah. But he said, you know, that's the only way you can really create this path for yourself. Um, and so I think you're quite right that this, you really are in some ways a tech, technical person. You are not a creator of new law. Although those opportunities sometimes do arise and they're rare, but really in many ways it is, so to speak, uh, mundane, tedious grunt work. And I wonder if that's part of the reason that a book like yours and others are needed in order to let law students know what not only law school is like, but also law practice. In other words, it's it's not always the sexy, glitty, glitzy stuff that you see uh, on television in terms of the valiant lawyer, it's often very mundane work. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that's true. Or, or perhaps if you find it mundane, it's not the right work for you. If you don't have a high tolerance for that. I mean, um, there, you know, I I think also one of the purposes of the book is to underscore the difference between being in law school and being a practicing lawyer, because I I do think that there's this tendency of um, people to go through law school and think, oh, I hate law school, or I'm not very good at it, and so I probably shouldn't be a lawyer. Um, and of course, you know, as you say, being a lawyer and being a law student are are very different in a number of ways. There are also a lot of ways to, you know, there there are a lot of ways to different types of legal practice. There are ways to be in the courtroom all day. There are ways to be in a library all day. There are ways to be in an office all day. Um, but, but as you say, I think all of these things are united by your job is to represent a client. Your job is not to decide necessarily what's, you know, morally right or morally wrong. Like, yes, you have some discretion depending on what job you have over, you know, say if you're a prosecutor over what cases you bring. Um, but, but very often, and, and certainly as is the case for folks who go, who go work in law firms, um, it, you know, you're, you're working on behalf of a client. That's what you're doing. You're not choosing the problems that you work on all day long. They are chosen for you. And for some people, that's great. I've had law students I've interviewed tell me, you know, it's just wonderful because it's like someone prevents, presents me with a problem and I solve it. And that's my job. And for me, I realized, oh, I want to find my own problems. I'm not, I'm not so into solving problems people give me. Uh, so that was, that, that was a useful distinction for, for me to make. Well, as per your training as a sociologist, you certainly include a, a discussion of the demographic characteristics of the types of people in law school and some of the issues they will face. And I I'm certainly want to explore some of those. But I'm also curious if you developed any sense of the psychological background that's helpful for somebody uh, or the type um, of psychological makeup that is more common to happy lawyers versus unhappy lawyers? Yeah, well, there was the, there was a study done a, a long time ago about uh, about optimists and, and pessimists in, in professional school. 
Um, and uh, basically, the the study showed that in all walks of professional school, so you know, medical school, uh, business school, engineering school, and so on, uh, optimists did better. But in law school, uh, that was the sole exception. Pessimists actually did better, meaning got higher grades. And, you know, we can imagine why this might be. We can imagine that if you're, you know, more pessimistic by nature, you're, um, really good at anticipating the ways that people might breach a contract, say, um, or, or violate a law in some, in some creative way. Whereas if you are predisposed to take a different view of human nature, you, you might be less naturally good at that. Um, but it, it's funny that you asked that question because that's part of precisely what I'm doing now. I have a new project that um, I'm, so, so this project for how to be sort of happy in law school, I surveyed, you know, 1100 students and got them 1Ls, 2Ls, and 3Ls at a, a particular point, one point in their in their law school career. Um, what I'm doing now is actually following about 50 1Ls um, throughout before their first year starts all the way to the end of the first year, interviewing them five times along the way. Um, so I hope to develop a more in-depth understanding of not only the psychology of law students who tend to succeed in terms of, or tend to like law school in terms of how law school is already, but how we might be able to change law school or teach students in ways that uh, are better for a wider variety of student. Um, so uh, hopefully I'll be getting back to you on that in, in a few years. And, and for this new study, do you plan on following them into whatever their chosen careers are? You know, I right now I'm just looking at it as a uh, as a study of one L year and of how people change. So we have, we have a number of studies that look at people, um, you know, before they start law school and then look after their one L year. Oh, they're very depressed and they're anxious. Um, we know this is true, and we know that the depression and the anxiety tends not to lift even three L year. Um, but what we don't know is actually the so what are the social and psychological mechanisms through which that happens. Um, you know, we know that at point A, they're like everyone else, you know, same rates of depression, same rates of anxiety. We know that at point B, um, they don't look as healthy mentally, but what happens in between? And so I think that one L year is very crucial. And so that's why I wanted to do a study of one L year. I'm not sure if I'll keep following them or not. Um, I, I don't know right now. I don't, I don't have special plans to. But when I visit law schools, I often get questions from, um, you know, deans and administrators and, and sometimes law, you know, faculty about 1L year and about the 1L curriculum and ways to change it. And in trying to answer their questions, I saw a need for more research. So that was what prompted this project. So when I think about law school, I think back to my first uh, ever impression of law school, which was based on a movie from the 1970s called The Paper Chase. Oh, of course. Yeah. And famously in the paper chase, there is this, I guess he's the villain of the movie, Professor Kingsfield. And he has, uh, this is at Harvard Law School, and it follows these students for, through their first year at Harvard Law School. And one of the um, most important scenes is right at the very beginning when he starts off first day of the first um, class, and he randomly calls on people. And he calls on this one poor student who's the protagonist through, throughout the movie. And after he pulls him through the ringer on with this cold call where he in, 
has this inquisition of him in front of all the other students. Uh, the next thing you see is him running to the bathroom to vomit. And so um, I remember that stuck with me ever since I was a kid. And I wondered what law school was going to be like once I got there. Well, it wasn't that bad, but uh, there is still this um, method of education that's really unique. So if you could explain uh, this style of teaching and how useful or, um, uh, or unproductive you think it is. Yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hesitating as I answer this. This was the one part of the book where as I wrote it, I thought, oh, boy, my friends who teach in law schools are not going to be very happy with me. Um, so this, the Socratic method is typically, so the idea of it, right, it comes from Socrates. It's the idea of asking people questions in order to get to the truth. Um, and of course, that makes some sense, right? If I'm, if I'm trying to figure out how a law works or where the line is between what's illegal and what's not, it's very useful to ask a number, uh, ask about a number of borderline cases to help me figure out where to really make those distinctions. So in theory, the Socratic method, uh, I, I think, m- makes a lot of sense. In practice, often the Socratic method uh, is about recall, is about like, what was the judge's argument you know, there was the dissenting judge's argument in the lower court or something like that, um, which I don't think is uh, a particularly useful exercise. Um, I also found in talking to students and in, in reading the survey results that a lot of students found the Socratic method so incredibly uh, stressful and paralyzing that they sometimes wouldn't come to class Um, they would describe their reading in ways that made it clear to me that they weren't really trying to understand the reading. They were trying to prepare themselves to be questioned in a very like, you know, recall way about it. Um, I'm not sure it's the best way to to teach. In fact, I think that it's not. I get why it's tempting. And in fact, I teach in a law school style evidence class um, for my undergraduates and um, very seriously considered using the Socratic method and ended up use it like very much tweaking it um and and not using the socratic method but it's tempting in a way because it's it's sort of easy and it creates this like great power dynamic um you know that's very that is very much like the paper chase you know students definitely read why do they read well they're scared are they prepared sure they are um but i do think that often the arguments for why socratic method is a good idea are 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 kind of bad ones so one argument that i hear is well, it prepares students for oral advocacy. Now, this would be true if in oral advocacy it were common for, you know, a judge to be in a courtroom with 150 lawyers, none of whom knew who the judge was going to question about a particular case, right? But that's not how it works. Um, You know, even if you're arguing in front of the Supreme Court, you have prepared over and over. You know the kinds of things that are going to be asked, you've, you know, looked over the case, you're, I mean, it's just, it's, it's completely different. It, it's nothing like you read a thing the night before and someone's asking you detailed questions about it. Um, so I, I think that's sort of silly. The other argument is that, that I hear a lot is that it's more equal. Like you hear more uh, female voices in the classroom, you hear more voices of color. And to that, I would say that hearing voices isn't the same as hearing perspectives. So just because you literally have people of color talking and women talking doesn't mean that you're suddenly getting their viewpoints represented uh, in, in some way. And in fact, 
Uh, there's some data that suggests that um, women particularly uh, don't do very well under Socratic method, tend to fall under, uh, you know, extreme stress, uh, tend to uh, be judged much more harshly by their peers in terms of how they answer, um, you know, and I don't know what the research looks like about people of color, but I wouldn't be that surprised uh, if it were different. So I don't know. When I see, I mean, I visited a lot of law schools. When I see Socratic method practiced, you know, I've only seen it practiced in a true Socratic way a handful of times. Um, we also have to remember that the people who become law professors are people generally who thrived under that system. It's a really wonderful way to teach certain people. I wasn't one of those people, um, but for some people it, it really works. And so they tend to pass it along. Um but I, but I do. I think we need more research about it. But I'm, all in all, not a huge fan. Well, I had always, you didn't really address this uh, in your review of the Socratic method. Uh, you were dealing with um, the responses that students had to it. And I was curious if, what you think of this, the, it seems to me that the Socratic method, I'd always thought of it as a pedagogical approach born out of the history of legal education in terms of the way that uh, Christopher Columbus Langdell made it famous in terms of the case method itself. In other words, you're learning the law uh, in some kind of pseudoscientific methodology of reviewing instances to, to build a larger infrastructure of understanding for legal rules. And so you learn it on a quote unquote case by case basis and that requires the student to understand what was the judge thinking of this particular strange fact pattern that was being introduced to them, and um, how can you, the student, replicate or di you know divert yourself from that pattern of thought, and so that the Socratic method was born out of that, and and so the case method itself. What do you think of that as? necessitating kind of this uh, inquisitorial approach that's traditional in law school? Right. I mean, it's, a, it's an excellent question. I, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because I do think it's really important to disentangle those two things. I actually love the case method. Um, I, think that, uh, I, I think that there are ways in which the case method tends to disadvantage people who come in without a basic knowledge of, for example, the structure of a tort. So like if you kind of know how you know, a, a tort is, is set up and you know kind of the components of a tort, it's going to make uh, the, the idea, uh, you know, of, of a particular concept is going to make more sense to you than it is to someone who, you know, has never encountered it before. Um, you know, the idea of duty, if you know that the idea of duty exists already and that it's part of a tort and here's how it fits in, uh, it's going to, th those cases will make more sense to you because you will have a structure within which to put them. Um, so I do think that there is a certain hide the ball aspect to the case method that is not particularly uh, necessary. Um, but aside from that, I, I think the case method is, I think it's fantastic. I mean, that's what you're doing as a lawyer all the time. You're drawing these distinctions. You're, you're, we're constantly, you know, in American law, building our understanding of, you know, what a breach is, uh, you know, or, or what a reasonable expectation of privacy is. So I think it's a very important way to get students to think. But I think there are a lot of ways to get at it pedagogically that uh, don't induce ridiculous amounts of stress in students, and actually that approximate legal practice more effectively. 
Um, we might imagine, you know, getting students to work in teams. We might imagine um, allowing students to prepare for at least certain aspects of questions ahead of time. We might imagine having students volunteer and then basically you, you know, uh, uh, volunteer yourself for, you know, Socratic, for Socratic questioning uh, in a particular case that you want to argue. And we can imagine a lot of ways that it would look more like legal practice um, and, and less like a, you know, kind of a, an unequal power dynamic that disadvantages women. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So one change that's occurred over the um, last probably two to three decades and maybe even longer in legal education is the rise of the clinical approach uh, where a law student works under a practitioner who is essentially an expert in a particular area of law, and they will work on actual cases that the practitioner is dealing with. And so in some ways, it's kind of uh, training wheels for uh, a training wheels approach to working in that area of law. In terms of the rise of of clinics and the prevalence of them in different schools, because schools offer a variety of types of clinics, and it's actually a recruiting tool uh, for some schools, um, what what do you think of this clinical approach and how it serves the profession and how it serves law students in terms of preparing them for practice? Oh, gosh, I think it's fantastic. I mean, I think that even even though clinics aren't required uh, at most law schools, um, I, I think they should be. I think there's you know, I mean, alum after alum I interviewed said, uh, you know, my clinic was the best part of my legal education. And that was certainly true for me. Um, both clinics I participated in, uh, there was a Supreme Court litigation clinic and also um, a wrongful convictions clinic. And they were my best experiences in law school because I learned how all of the uh, all of the kinds of argument, all of the kinds of writing I was learning actually made a difference. And not only that, but got to engage in things like direct client contact under uh, under the expertise and under the tutelage of someone who knew a heck of a lot more than I did. Um, I think I think clinics are fantastic. Um, but I think that often when we talk about legal education reform, we put too much weight on clinics and we expect clinics to kind of, we recognize that law school, that legal education needs to be changed in various ways. And then we throw more clinics at it, or we say, well, let's make a clinic required for three L's. Rather than fundamentally changing all of law school, we kind of keep doctrinal classes the same. And then we have this, you know, practice component that's totally separate from doctrine. But of course, practice and doctrine aren't separate uh, at all. And so I think that that it requires a rethinking. Um, but I, I advise students to engage in as many clinics as they are allowed to in law school um, and as early as they possibly can. I think it's, I think they're fantastic. So you have a lot of advice. This is kind of the self-help element of the book. You have a lot of advice for law students in terms of how to approach classes, uh, how to approach even things like taking notes, preparing for class, preparing for exams, et cetera. And so there's a lot that you could uh, choose from to discuss. What for you 
uh, are some of the most important things that current law students should keep in mind that might be helpful to law students across the board, whether no matter what kind of school they're in, whether it's a selective school versus not, in terms of approaching um, grappling with their uh, day-to-day learning life, so to speak? Sure. Um, Yeah, I mean, and actually the advice that I would have really does go across the board. I was surprised how, you know, if I talk to students at, you know, quote-unquote lower-ranked law schools, which of course there are all kinds of problems with the ranking, um, they would think that students at, you know, Yale and Harvard and Stanford were the happiest. And of course, the Yale and Harvard and Stanford students thought that, you know, students at, at other schools were were happier. I mean, there were really the, the advice that I, I would give to people kind of goes across the, the board for the most part. Um, I, I guess one thing that, that manifested in, you know, a thousand different ways and uh, across, I mean, across, you know, gender, race, sexual orientation, everything, although we hear about women experiencing imposter syndrome, um, and we hear about people of color experiencing it. There were plenty of, of, of white men, white, you know, cis, uh, hetero men who also experienced imposter syndrome. Um, imposter syndrome is, you know, kind of the persistent sense that you aren't really equipped to be wherever you are, that you're sort of half faking it. You know, it's not a, it's not a mental disorder. Um, it's not something that gets a diagnosis. It's more of a constellation uh, of, of thought patterns. And of course, in a sense, it makes sense that students would have imposter syndrome because they are imposters. They're pretending to be lawyers and they're not lawyers yet, but they have to try to act like them. So in a sense, imposter syndrome is, is natural. Um, but the problem um, with imposter syndrome is that it can lead to kind of all all sorts of, of negative thought patterns and it can lead us to really limit ourselves. So, you know, for, for an example, um, uh, an example that I think I give something like this in the book, say you, you get a D on an exam that you thought you did really well on. Um, if you have imposter syndrome, you think, you know, what a terrible grade. I used to get A's. I knew I shouldn't be here as opposed to thinking, shoot, I guess I didn't study hard enough, or I better go and figure out what I wasn't getting right. And imposter syndrome, sort of no matter whether you succeed or not, imposter syndrome will sort of get you. You're chosen as, you know, an editor of, of a, you know, your school's environmental journal, you think probably no one else wanted it. You're not chosen as article as, as you know, an editor of the environmental journal, you think, see, I'm not even good enough to do well here. Um, so it means that you attribute your successes to flukes or lack of competition, but when you fail, uh, you interpret it as evidence of a lack of ability or, or intelligence. You tend to over-internalize failure. Um, and I think it's hard to recover from imposter syndrome. And I think that we should teach students very specific tools for dealing with it. Um, you know, one way is, um, to really emphasize to students that they're learning a new skill set. And they don't yet have the tools to tackle every question. Um, we wouldn't call a first grader stupid for not knowing how to do long division. Um, we shouldn't call ourselves stupid for our, you know, inability to understand the parole evidence rule the first time around. Um, we, uh, you know, another way to, to address imposter syndrome is thinking about how you'd interpret a friend's experience of a success or failure. If your friend got an editorial position, you probably wouldn't think, nah, there, there must not have been much competition. Um, and I think we judge ourselves more harshly than we judge others. And I think law school maybe, uh, so I don't know if this is true, um, but maybe law school selects for people who tend to uh, hold themselves to impossibly high standards, um, very exacting standards that can lead them to be really uncomfortable when they're 
you know, merely average in, uh, in a group of very talented uh, law students. Well, I, I wonder, your answer suggests, though, that maybe the idea of imposter syndrome and the unhappiness that someone has uh, when going through law school, maybe that's reflective, though, of a mismatch between what people really will intellectually enjoy in their lives and what the practice of law itself, quote unquote, demands of them. Because, uh, and I, let me explain why I ask it, I'm asking this this way. It seems to me that one thing that I remember encountering when I practiced um, was the constant presence as a, a practicing lawyer of a concern for how lawyers were doing in terms of mental health. And there was this obvious implicit theme, even in the local bar uh, association, uh, whenever you had a function, that alcoholism was a problem always lurking around the bend, and there, there were probably more people abusing alcohol and maybe indulging in other releases for their stress than we could realize. And that it seemed to be, there seemed to be this undercurrent uh, that a lot of lawyers were unhappy. And there was a phrase I remember when I went, I, I left the practice after seven years to get a PhD. And I remember people joking and said, oh, you're a recovering lawyer. And that's a common uh, enough phrase uh, that I learned uh, after leaving the profession because other people say it somewhat tongue in cheek. But it seems to me that there is this reputation of law. And I think it also applies to other uh, professions where people's livelihoods and lives depend upon your judgments as a professional, that there is a sense that some people are really unhappy in it because they just can't handle the stress very well, or they respond to the stress in unhealthy ways. And so I'm curious what you think about the, uh, the way that people come into the profession um, how there is, there may or may not be a mismatch so that people are attracted to it who don't realize that maybe they're not as well suited to it until it's too late and they're already in it. Well, you know, there may be an element of truth to that. At, at the same time, you know, we if you think about other uh, types of graduate school, like I'm thinking of other uh, folks who engage in work um, where others are really dependent on on their expertise, where their lives are in people's hands. You know, you might think about surgeons, or you might think about you know even a social worker counseling someone about whether to leave an abusive spouse. Social workers, for example, are taught um, a great deal about how to handle their own stress. They're taught that they're entering a profession where they're going to encounter certain kinds of stress they may have never encountered before. They're given explicit strategies for how to deal with it. And this is part of their training. And uh, I very much believe that we should be doing that in law school. I mean, there's a movement to do more of that in medical school. But really, the idea of, you know, wellness, well-being, and all of that stuff is, is very much marginalized in law schools to the extent that students don't feel comfortable asking for help or talking about their mental health. Because sometimes I think you're right. There, there might be a mismatch. But I think more often um, it's that students are um, 
they think that they're like law school presents you as an institution. It's a social institution that presents you with a lot of shoulds. You enter and you suddenly learn that there's a right way to be a law student. I should apply for this opportunity. I should be on law review. I should, you know, work at a law firm. I should clerk for a judge. There are a lot of shoulds. There's not a lot of emphasis on uh, the idea that there are a lot of different ways to be a lawyer and that your job in law school is to figure out what kind of lawyer you want to be. Um, I think that there's a lot of unnecessary stress, a lot of unnecessary competition. Um, I think that law school is set up in a way that we shouldn't be surprised that it creates, you know, sort of stressful uh, stress cases, you know, of our law students. Um, I think we could do a much better job preparing lawyers. I really do. So do you think, though, that the turning point for people is once they're in law school, that that's what sets them up for stress once they are in the profession? Or is there any potential way to prepare people before they make that commitment to going to law school? Um, Because obviously there are financial problems and risks once you commit yourself. And um, there's the concern with, well, I'm already I've already gone through first year. I might as well finish the second Mm -hmm. last two um, and so that in itself is, you know, the so-called fallacy of sunk, sunk right, the costs. Sunk cost fallacy. Absolutely. Uh, but beyond, before that, before you reach that commitment, um, when you advise people for uh, pre-law advising, uh, you know, and I do this a lot in my capacity as an undergraduate uh, professor, I talk to people who plan to or would like to go to law school. And um, I'm always faced with a conundrum of how much should I say that's going to, in some ways, affect their outlook on law school um, rather than simply trying to give them factual information about their chances of admission. And so I wonder if you think uh, that sociologically, the, the route to which people come to law school, if that should be part of the concern of law schools before they ever get there, um, but also yeah. for undergraduate education in and of itself. Well, that's, I mean, that's such a great question. I will say I do not envy pre-law advisors a bit. Um, We have a fantastic pre-law advisor at at UMass. And, you know, sometimes I end up talking to to people informally, but I do very little of that, of that work. Um, You know, in some sense, I feel like if you talk to any practicing lawyer and you say, I'm trying to decide whether to go to law school, they'll tell you, don't go to law school, law school's terrible. And that they sort of feel like they have to do that to deter you. And then if you make it past like that obstacle, well, you're meant to go to law school or something. Um, I think that we could be a little bit more straightforward about what law school entails. I mean, I think about other, you know, other countries in the way that they train lawyers and it's so common not to have, you know, you don't have a broad undergraduate education and then go to law school, right? Law school is kind of your undergraduate education. You major in law and then you take the bar and you practice law. It's, it's hard to see why we don't do something um, like that, but I'm not sure. I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I don't know how we could better prepare people for what it's going to be like. I guess what I would rather do is make law school a better place for a wider variety of people, because my concern would be that if you, you know, if you uh, uh, deter students from going to law school in, in various ways, if you you know, make it sound as unpleasant as frankly, it often really is. It's going to create kind of a less well-rounded, less diverse profession. Um, and I think the profession needs all kinds of different people. It's a, it's a tough question. Right. Yeah. I, I it's uh, something we can't answer fully here. I, I think it is just um, 
because there's no um, pre-law set of required knowledge. In other words, you can have any kind of major before you go into law school and you don't have to have biology or chemistry under your belt before you go in like you do for medical school. Um, and so people with, especially in this age of great inflation, um, a lot of people look on paper like they're prepared for law school. And in some ways, I'm sure they are. But then others, they seem rather disillusioned because they're not entirely um, acclimated to it. And they really don't, in some ways, know what they're getting into uh, in terms of what law school demands of them or expects of them in terms of the social aspects of the profession. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you've also, part of your book discusses, or a good portion of it discusses, the different types of people that are in law school today versus, say, 50 years ago. And right. obviously, it's broadened out in terms of what we think of as uh, social minorities, um, African-Americans. Uh, uh, today, famously, women make up sometimes more than 50% of almost all law school classes across the board. And so certainly the demographic profile of law students has changed. Um, has that changed legal education much? Um. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of a, a an empirical historical question. I don't see how it couldn't have. Um, but I do know that people's experiences in law school um, are, are still rather unequal. I, that was one thing that actually really surprised me about reading the book. I wasn't uh, one, one thing I, I asked students in this in the survey was, uh, like, have any aspects of your identity been relevant to your law school experience, positive or negative? Right, so giving them room to talk about race, gender, sexual orientation, class, whatever. Um, I was stunned at a few things. One was the extent to which um, women had negative experiences in law school. It made me think that you know, um, not not so much has changed in the last few decades. Um, I was also stunned, well, maybe not stunned since it was my own experience, but at the extent to which class manifests in various ways in law school. Um, but there were a lot of identities where, 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 people felt, um, where people felt marginalized. I mean, I think that law school is a place that's changing, but it's also an institution that for various reasons is quite resistant to change and isn't equally friendly to everyone who comes into it. Well, that's part of the reason I ask it like that. Uh, I'm less concerned with um, answering the historical development of it than it seems to me that you have not only a different demographic in terms of students, but also in terms of faculty. And so there are quite a few more women and minorities on the faculty at law schools today. There are. And, I'm sorry? Oh, I just said, yeah, there there, there are. Um, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of room for change uh, and, and progress, but Absolutely. And so I wondered if that in and of itself has changed the way that people experience law school. So, for example, um, you, you talk about the you quote a lot of, of your, I guess, your survey respondents and perhaps your interviewees in terms of the variety of responses to particular problems. And it's, people have it seems to me from uh, the quotes that you give that there's no uniform or typical response to different situations. Uh, or different aspects of institutionalized legal education. People, some people love certain things, some people hate certain things. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious if you think that, in other words, we've seen these demographic changes, but at the same time, it seems like law school, no matter 
how you change it, it's still kind of a tough experience that no matter what your demographic background, it's just, it's not an easy row for anybody to hoe. Is that right? I, I think that's right right now. I mean, one, you know, I would just give you the example of gender. So, uh, you know, one, I saw a few themes in women's experiences just over and over. One thing that they uh, described was that there's this very narrow range of, you know, quote unquote, acceptable behavior in which they could engage. So quiet women were perceived as too shy and unassertive. Assertive women were judged even more harshly and they risked being labeled things like overbearing or, you know, God forbid, bitchy, nasty, maybe even, um, you know, women said things like, you know, men can talk all the time and be seen as merely uh, overachievers, but, you know, I'm seen as an annoying person if I do that. Um, there was another theme that really dovetails with the sociological literature, which is that, you know, men in general um, can dress and present in a wide range of ways without harming their social or occupational prospects. Likeable men might be, you know, heavy or thin, attractive or not, um, uh, not so for women. Women who characterize themselves as unattractive said that their appearance worked uh, against them. They talked about trying to lose weight so that they could get a better, you know, summer job. Um, no men said anything like that. And so I think that that's a good example of how, um, you know, at many of these schools, even if you have, you know, a third of people on faculty uh, who are women or even half, although I don't think any come come quite close to half, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily change the institution itself. There are still social phenomena that are going to be produced and reproduced over time if the institution itself doesn't transform. That is merely putting people who look different into the exact same roles and then rewarding them for acting in the exact same way that their predecessors acted is not likely to produce great institutional change. So if institutional change is something that's desirable from your perspective, how do you think it can be achieved? Well, I guess it depends what kind of institutional change. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that there's curricular institutional change, um, which is actually something I'm, I'm writing about now in a forthcoming article. I'm writing about how um, the access to justice crisis can and should transform legal education. Um, if we're talking curricular change, I think that it's going to take, um, you know, a really kind of uh, uh, pioneering uh, law school dean to spearhead this change who doesn't, um, who for one has the trust of faculty um, and uh, for another, I guess, has the trust of students because students are also extremely risk averse. Um, I mean, if you have the same faculty who've been teaching the same classes forever, uh, it, it can be hard to say, you know, sorry, like contracts, like two L's are going to take contracts now, not one L's. Like faculty don't always like like change. I think that change is likely to come from either, from one of a, a number of different types of law schools, if we're talking about curricular change. So one, if you're a law school at the very, you know, quote unquote top, um, you have some flexibility. If you're a law school at the very quote unquote bottom, you have some flexibility. Also, if you're the only game in town, if you're a law school where you're the only accredited law school in your state, you have some flexibility. So I think that those are the places we're most likely to see change. But it's funny if I, you know, I, I went to one 
uh, top 10 law school, which shall remain unnamed, and talked to the uh, members of the curriculum committee and and the dean as well. And the dean said, um, my faculty would never allow change. They're far too rigid. I would love change. Talked to faculty members who said, oh, we would love change. The dean is so resistant to anything. It's like no matter who you talk to, they're, they're really into the idea that everyone else is invested in things being exactly the way they always have been. Um, but I think there's this kind of institutional, dep- like no law school wants to be too different from other law schools because I think that law is inherently a very risk-averse profession, and stepping out and looking different could be bad, could be negative, could be risky. Um, you know, why do that? Unless, um, go ahead. No, I was going to say, uh, sorry to interrupt you. So it sounds like you're describing something that I guess economists uh, often think of as uh, path dependence. Exactly. Where, where you've got an institution that has certain practices that. 90 plus percent of the time seem to work. They produce the outcome that's needed uh, for the institution to function. And so in some ways it's kind of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it uh, type of uh, disposition, which is not irrational. And so you might have somebody who has a, so to speak, a reformist zeal, or at least is open to it as a professor, maybe even as a dean, but nevertheless, they feel constrained by not just tradition, but rather, uh, the sense that uh, perhaps the social sense that other people aren't quite necessarily as uh, on board with reform as you are, perhaps, and also things may not be so broken, so innovations themselves uh, might be too risky. I think that's true. I, I think innovation is, you know, is is especially in a in an institution that's been around and sort of looked the same for a long time, like law schools. I think innovation is seen as risky, and I think that's part of why when you talk about innovation, a lot of what I think is the most innovative work is, is happening in law school clinics, not doctrinal classrooms. Um, although I, I actually don't think that curricular reform, I, I don't think you know doctrinal education as we know it should be should be thrown out the window, not, not at all. I actually think we need to not necessarily change the, the way that, that lawyers are taught to think, but teach lawyers to think in more versatile ways. And right now we impart legal analytical skills, but at the exclusion of other modalities. Um, Just to give you one example, one of these modalities is the ability to think like a non-lawyer. We really, you know, reify thinking like a lawyer, but understanding how everyday people experience justice problems and why they may not seek legal assistance can help lawyers interact in ways that incorporate client perspectives. And this is actually something that if you talk to alums is at the top of their list. When I ask, what did you wish you had learned in law school? We have a very robust literature on this topic, often known as legal consciousness. It's never taught in law schools. I mean, maybe in like week 10 of some sociology of law seminar that like five students take, right? Um, it's, It's completely marginalized in the legal academy. But teaching law students how everyday people think about the law would allow us uh, would allow them to learn how to identify client misunderstandings, to design more effective outreach programs, to understand the hurdles that communities face. That's just one example. So uh, there are incremental changes that certainly uh, could be made consciously in terms of the way legal education is done. It seems to me that part of what your book does is, and this may not be consciously so, uh, but it seems to. Uh, identify in some ways a moment in time. In other words, you're reviewing a population that has not only a certain demographic profile, but a certain demographic profile that's reflective of early 21st century America, 
right? And so maybe uh, 50 years ago, some of the concern, you know, hypothetically or arbitrarily, 50 or even 100 years ago, some of these same educational concerns may or may not have been as important to the law students if you had been able to do such a study uh, at an earlier point in time. And maybe 50 or 100 years from now, the uh, profile of what is and what is not um, good educational practice might be different. Of course, that's entirely speculative. But my point is rather that um, in some ways, what we're seeing is change that has happened incrementally over time. Not only do we now have more female and minority students, but also the, the method of testing people has changed somewhat incrementally over time. Not all law school classes, for example, have one test at the end of the semester. Some actually do have some kind of preparatory aspects where you have quizzes that might affect your grade a little bit so that it's not entirely dependent on a single test. And so maybe change happens in a law in a path dependent institution like law school just incrementally. It's just it's tough to do it wholesale um, where you change things dramatically. Yeah, that may be so. Um, You know, we see occasionally uh, different law professors taking these kind of radical approaches to different subjects. Um, And uh, like I'm thinking of Ron Wright, for example, at Wake Forest uh, Law School. He teaches criminal procedure in um, you know, completely in a completely different way from from many law professors it uses a traditional casebook, um, but uh, but there are you know kind of simulations. There, I believe, are like a midterm or two. Like it's you know it's it's quite uh, quite different from the traditional one final at the end model that um, most law professors actually still use. Um, his students seem to do fine. Like there, there doesn't seem to be any, you know, great deficit of, you know, uh, prosecutorial uh, ability in, in North Carolina. Um, I think there are a lot of great ways to teach law and to teach the case method. And I think that maybe some of that's beginning to emerge, but we don't tend to hire law professors for their pedagogical ability. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't, seem to be even a little bit of the hiring practices. Like we sort of hire law professors and then they sort of are who they are. Um, and it's, you know, not going to help their tenure to become really good teachers, but, uh, you know, some of them will become better teachers on their own and, and some won't. And I think that if we actually kind of required some kind of pedagogical training or put some kind of premium on um, uh, pedagogical innovation, I mean, if you put the right incentives in place, suddenly people get really good at things. Um, but it shouldn't be a huge surprise that we don't hire people for their ability or their promise as teachers at all, uh, that we don't promote them on that basis. And then that we're like surprised that they use this, you know, assessment method that doesn't actually take that much effort. So my last question for you is in order to be, as you say, sort of happy in law school, if you could wave a magic wand what would be one thing that you would change about law students' experience that's typical in law school that you would change that you think could improve their experience while they're in school? Oh, boy, that's such a hard question. Um, If I only got one thing, what would it be? Well, you know, I think that aside from uh, requiring a clinic, which I think would be great, I actually think that I would require some kind of class that tried to, I mean, I think clinical mental health support is crucial, but I actually think that more broadly, we should equip law students with 
the metacognitive tools they need for a lifetime of lawyering. We know they'll encounter things like imposter syndrome and stereotype threat. We should teach them how to handle them. We can do simple pedagogical interventions to create a growth mindset. We know how to give students guided practice and chances to fail and improve before we give them a three-hour exam that determines whether they get a clerkship or make law review. We know how to use problem sets. We know how to teach students to um, to, to think in metacognitive ways that will help them uh, become better lawyers and that I think would not only strengthen the legal profession, uh, but really help law students manage their own mental health. Because as you point out, mental health is something that a lot of people struggle with, not just in law school, but throughout their legal careers. Right. Well, thank you, Catherine. Uh, we've been joined today by Catherine Young. She's the author of How to Be Sort of Happy in Law School. And thanks, Catherine, for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you.